Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Would you guys just bow your heads with me once more? Well, Jesus, the gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. And that reality assumes everything about our lives. It assumes our brokenness. That there are real wounds and hurts and pains that only can be filled by you, but it also assumes a blessing that Christ has come to redeem and to ransom and to restore. And so Lord Jesus, on a day where there are conflicting emotions, emotions of wonderful celebration, emotions of tragic loss, emotions of long enduring trials coming to an end and new work left to be done, we know that the same source we turn to for eternal life is the same source we turn to for a broken life, for a faithful life, for a perseverant life. So we spend time in your word today, Lord. We ask for your mercy. We pray this in your name. Amen. So October 18th, 2020, that was our last Sunday, or our first Sunday in the church, it's not church, the library downtown. That's 50 weeks of setup and teardown, 50 Saturdays of Johnny sneaking into town early to set up the sound system, 50 Sundays of volunteers getting to the library at 6 a.m. to set up chairs. Over those 50 weeks, we set up and tore down over 10,000 chairs, chairs which this past week have been staged, moved, loaded, unloaded multiple times and set up where they are today, chairs which we hope no one spills anything and we don't have to move these chairs for a long time. December 5th, 2020, was our first demolition day where we swung our first first hammer through. I'm still learning the difference between hammer and nail. It's been nine long months, but I'm getting there. I bought a tool set this week. I don't know why. We're done with most things, but I have it now, and I know how to use it. December 5th was the first demolition day. And that set a pattern of a standing work day of just about every Saturday for 44 weeks. Those 44 weeks, there were conservatively, just on those Saturday workdays, over 3,000 hours donated by our own members, by friends of our church, by other churches in town, which if you know what construction prices are like today in the industry is roughly a savings of over $130,000 to our building fund, not to mention the thousands more hours that came from Kurt Bowler being here when he wakes up at a crisp 3.30 in the morning and goes to his day job. That doesn't include the cost savings we had from volunteers or skill-specific labor who came in during the week and on weeknights with helping out with IT, with media, putting in baseboards, setting flooring, cleaning, painting, packing, vacuuming, organizing the gym, selling items online, preparing for garage sales. It doesn't include the items donated or the below market costs from people like Bert and Shane at Swank Enterprises, Great Floors, Felco Industries, Scoglin Painting and Restoration, Paul Ursley Framing and Garden City Plumbing and Heating. 
And after all those donations, after all those hours, all those setups and teardowns, all those moms getting locked out of the crying room with the pin pad at the old building, all the toys of Parks and Rec that your kids couldn't touch, here we are today at 2010 Third Avenue West, where we will be Lord willing until he takes us home. Here we sit, and yet we are not yet done. In more ways than one. Your hand's a little chilly. We've got all these beautiful piping in here for heat, and yet the gas hasn't been hooked up yet. (laughs) So if it's chilly, it's not just you, it's all of us. The women's restroom, you have wonderful toilets all laid out in a row with absolutely nothing separating them. (laughs) We hope that changes. But also I'd like to point out that is the life of a male. Our kids don't have classrooms. We've got a nursery and a roughshod infant's care room. Hopefully within the next few months, we'll cobble together something in true Sovereign Hope style for our twos and threes and hopefully fours and fives. We have a parking lot which isn't painted. Uh, We have a sanctuary which isn't carpeted. We have a loan which isn't paid off and a building fund which isn't over. But the good news of the Bible is amidst all of this cause for celebration and amidst all of this cause for anxiety, the gospel meets us in these moments of celebration, but not completion. Jesus meets us in these seeming moments of tension and he calls us onward. He carries us forward in the grace he's given to us and in the mission he has provided us as a church. And that's why we're pausing in our series on, in Proverbs right now to focus on a passage which Devin just read for us, a passage which when we were doing our Bible reading plan, I stood out to me earlier this year because what we see in this story is the people of God, Israel, in a very similar circumstance to where we are today. Something was drastically different. Something was new. Something was better. But it wasn't perfect. And it wasn't final. And the work wasn't over. They had a big need fixed, and we have a big need fixed. But the need for broken sinners, the need for care, the need for hurting people still remained in 1 Chronicles 23, and it still remains at 2010 Third Avenue West. And so in looking at 1 Chronicles 23 today, I want us to see that this moment in Sovereign Hope's history gives us the privilege to rest and to rejoice But that rest and that rejoicing gives us the joy we need to move forward in a markedly new way. And as we remember what it's taken to get us here today, David is helping the tribe of Levi, the priests, remember what it took to get to where they are at in this moment in time. And this shapes what we're going to do today. And so we're going to look at three portraits of remembrance. First, we are going to remember where we are, that is for us and for the, the story of scripture. We're going to remember who we are. And then lastly, we are going to remember our duty. And so what I want to do right now is read for us our passage once more. First Chronicles 23, verses 24 through 32. It says this, These were the sons of Levi by their father's houses, the head of father's houses, as they were listed according to the number of names of the individuals from 20 years old and upward who were to do the work for the service of the house of the Lord. For David said, The Lord, the God of Israel, has given rest to his people, and he dwells in Jerusalem forever. 
And so the Levites no longer need to carry the tabernacle or any of the things for its service. For by the last word of the David, the sons of Levi were numbered from 20 years old and upward. For their duty was to assist the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of the Lord, having the care of the courts and the chambers, the cleansing of all that is holy, and any work for the service of the house of God. Their duty was also to assist with the showbread, the flour, the grain offering, the wafers of unleavened bread, the baked offering, the offering mixed with oil, and the measures of quantity or size. And they were to stand every morning thanking and praising the Lord, and likewise at the evening. And whenever burnt offerings were offered to the Lord on Sabbaths, new moons, and feast days, according to the number required of them regularly before the Lord. Thus they were to keep charge of the tent of meeting and the sanctuary and to attend the sons of Aaron, their brothers, for the service of the house of the Lord. So in light of this, our first point today is to remember where we are. And if we want to have any clarity on where we are, we need to understand where they were at this moment of the story of Scripture. All of our lives are based off of the redemptive story of Jesus and where we fall in that line. And so here's a brief story of what happened in, I'm on page 420. So this is what happened in the previous 420 pages. This is previously on God's story of redemption. So Genesis 12, God reveals himself to Abraham. Says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a people and I'm going to bring you into a promised land and I am going to be your God. And so here we see, and if you've been at Sovereign Hope, you've seen these three promises that encompass the full promise of God, that God's goal in redeeming humanity is to make God's people in God's place and to have them in God's direct presence. And so that's what God promised to do with Abraham. He was going to make them a people. He was going to give them a place, and he was going to be their God, and they were going to be his people. And so fast forward. And God's promise to Abraham has flourished. Abraham's grandson is named Jacob, and his name is changed to Israel. Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And by the time Genesis ends and Exodus begins, the number of God's people have flourished. But they have not flourished in the land of promise, but they have flourished in the kingdom of Pharaoh under slavery in Egypt. They might be God's people, but they were not in God's place. But God was going to act. He calls Moses to redeem God's people out of what was not God's place and to bring them into the promised land. He delivers them out of slavery, and even more than that, he appears with them in his presence. That is, fire by night and a cloud by day, God dwelt with his people. And he led them to the gates of the promised land, the wonderful place where everyone hoped to be. And yet they look into the land, and what do they see? They see big people and tall walls already living in the land. And they say, God, we can't fight these people. They doubted that God would be able to fulfill his promise. And so God disciplines his people, and he turns them back into the wilderness for 40 years of wandering. And during that time, God gave instructions. They were God's people. They were not in God's place, but God still wanted to dwell with them. And so he gave them, and you read this in, in, in the Old Testament, he gave them instructions. He gave them the Lego kit that you pull out for how to construct the tabernacle. 
this mobile home that would house God's pleasance, or pleasance? Uh, presence with poles and tarps and hides and gold. And everywhere they went, they would pack it up and set it up, and God would dwell in the midst of them. And eventually, in this nomadic constant set up and tear down, Moses dies, and Joshua leads God's people into the promised land, and bit by bit, they see what we always need to see, and that is that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. That even though there were big people and tall walls, their God was bigger and taller. And he began to displace them. And then we get into the age of the kings. God's people are in the promised land. And King David has caused the nation to flourish. There is peace on every side. He has conquered all of those seven scary tribes of big people and tall walls. God's people are safe. And David looks and sees that God has now established a place, a holy city, Jerusalem. This is where God is going to dwell. No more is it going to be, where do we go this morning, the Lord? Or Lord, he, God is, wow. No more are they saying, where are we going today, Lord? God has said, I'm going to dwell here. This is the holy city. This is where David builds a palace, a marvelous palace. And David looks out and does what we often do, where we think we could do favors to God, right? And he says, hey, I want to build you a house. And God's like, I didn't ask for this. I brought you out of slavery and built you a house. I don't need you to do favors for me. And he says, David, you will not build me a house. Your son will build me a temple. And that's the context we have in our story today. David is nearing the end of his life. And he's looking out and he's seeing that here are God's people. They are in God's place. But God's presence dwells in an REI tent. He's making plans for the three of those to find their fullness. And beginning in chapter 22, he begins to assemble the wood and the gold and the bronze and the silver beyond measure so that Solomon has everything he needs to build this temple where God will dwell in his people, in his place, with his presence. And David then picks up this here and he is preparing for this transition. They are in the permanent city with an impermanent tabernacle. And David is now speaking to the Levites. He is giving a census of these people who are called to ministry. And he's noting this unique transition. We see this transition in 1 Chronicles 23, verses 24 through 28. These were the sons of Levi by their father's houses, the head of the father's houses, as they were listed according to the number of names of the individuals from 20 years old and upward, who were to do the work of service for the house of the Lord. For David said, the Lord, the God of Israel, has given rest to his people, and he dwells in Jerusalem forever. And so the Levites no longer need to carry the tabernacle or any of the things for its service. For by the last words of David, the sons of Levi were numbered from 20 years old and upward. For their duty was to assist the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of the Lord, having the care of the courts and the chambers and the cleansing of all that is holy and any work for the service of the house of God. And so here we see this unique paradigm. And what is that paradigm? That God has granted rest to his people. We had 40 weeks of setting up and tearing down in the library 
40 weeks of, or 50 weeks of setting up and tearing down in the library, 40 weeks of laboring in this building. But the Levites, who were called to be the ones to set up and tear down the tabernacle whenever God's presence would begin to lead Israel somewhere else, they had 40 years of setup and tear down. 40 years of collapsing curtains and packing up altars and tearing down pole structures and hauling the Ark of the Covenant through barren and rugged terrain. But now they have rest. No more mobility. No more 6 a.m. chair dates. God had promised to dwell in Jerusalem forever and he wasn't moving. God had brought them to their resting place. But did you notice that this wasn't a rest from work, was it? It was actually a rest for work. David said there used to be a need, but now God has provided for that need. God has given Israel a central place of worship in Jerusalem. So what does David do? He proclaims to them the good news of that rest the good news of no setup and teardown, and then he commissions them back to the duty of ministry. David knew two things. First, he knew that this sort of ministry, this ministry of serving the house of the Lord had no end. The work of praising God would need to continue even when God's people were in God's place in God's perfect presence. But he also knew, secondly, that even though the tabernacle and the tent of meeting would no longer need to be set up and torn down, the temple still needed to be built. Something better was still on the horizon and the people needed to labor in light of that. There was a greater glory, a greater beauty, a greater presence held out for them. And in light of that, David puts them to a new sort of work. We find ourselves in a similar situation today, don't we? Today, Dan, or Johnny will not say, Please help us out, stack your chairs 10 high, and move them over to the corner. He will not say that. He might want to, but he won't. We are here. We are here. But we are not yet there. We are God's people, and we have a place, we have a church building, and yet this building is not the temple of God. This is where God promises to dwell uniquely amongst his people. That's the promise of the new covenant church, that God dwells wonderfully here amidst us in a way he doesn't dwell at a grizzly football game or at Walmart or at a family birthday party. There is a wonderfully unique presence of God in this place today that we don't need to conjure it. We don't need to summon it. God has promised that it is here. And yet... It is not ultimately God's presence that's here. This church and this building is not the kingdom of heaven. You see, many of us have encountered, perhaps in our own lives, but certainly in the lives of others, people who are disappointed, hurt with the church. They call the church hypocritical. And that's because many people expect the church to be something it's not. The church is not God's final point of redemption. We are longing together as imperfect people in a time of transition for God's final piece of redemption. This is like heaven, 
but it is so entirely unlike the goodness which will be ours one day. In fact, the temple, in all of its glory, wasn't even that place for Israel. The temple was built, the kingdom was divided, competing temples were built, temples were destroyed, temples were rebuilt, temples lacked their luster, but then God acted again. You see, as viewers and readers of God's story of redemption, when God promises David in Samuel 7 that he is going to have his son build the temple, we think that naturally this son is Solomon. And sure enough, Solomon does build the temple. But that temple was not God's final presence that they longed for. But another son would be born. Another son of the line of David. Jesus Christ, the son of God, who John says he came and tabernacled among his people. Jesus dwelt with us, the presence of God, fully God and fully man. Paul says that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Here was God's presence amongst God's people. And look at how Jesus spoke of himself in John chapter 2, verses 18 and 22. So the Jews said to him, What signs do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. The presence of God, the presence we long for, for safety and security is not ultimately a building built by men, but it is Jesus himself. Jesus is the perfect temple, God's perfect presence. And more than that, the presence of God through Jesus Christ promises God's Final place. Here we are worshiping God, not in Jerusalem, separated miles from it, and yet God is here. And why is that? Because that Jerusalem was meant to point forward to something else. And we see this something else in the book of Revelation, verse 21, verses 2 through 4. I saw, and this is the end of all things, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, listen to the promises, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. There it is, place, people, presence. And God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You see, we come to a building today with all sorts of mixed emotions, but the good news, the best news we encounter this side of death is always mixed news. But there will be a place when the new place and the new presence and the new people are only good news. For all that hurts and harms has been washed away by the king who has come to save us. So where are we in this story 
We're in a place right now where every aspect of rest we feel in this building. Every chair we don't have to move, every pin pad we don't have to punch, every hammer we don't have to hit, every dump load we don't have to run, reminds us that we were built for this forever rest. A rest purchased by Jesus himself. A rest which will one day be yours and yours forever if you come to God through Jesus Christ. This world always has work. Monday always comes. But it's only the gospel that promises rest in the midst of our work. So we look at this building and we refuse to overthink it. The church, the ministry, the relief, the shelter this provides us reminds us it is a foretaste of what lay ahead. And for those of you who are visiting here today, our goal is not to get you to this tabernacle. It's not to get you to this temple. Our goal is to get you to the presence of God in Jesus Christ. Everything you want comes there. The goal of this church is just to make clear what we are not and what Jesus really is. Come to Jesus. You cannot come to the church, but by coming to Jesus. There is a longing so central to every human to belong, and that is because we were made to belong with God's people in God's place and with God's presence. And regardless of where you come from or what you have done, the blood of Christ on a cross brings you into that reality where you sit now and you long for later. And that means when we come to Jesus, we have a holy joy about what is ours and a holy discontent for what is yet to be. We see the rest. God has taken wanderers and slaves and made them sons and daughters. But we are sons and daughters who Paul says in Romans are eagerly awaiting a redemption and an adoption yet to come at the return of Jesus. But even with these present promises and the future reality of rest, David goes to these Levites who are in this transition period of being at rest but being still not where they wanted to be and he turns them to joyful work. Why? Because that's what rested, redeemed sons and daughters were made to do. And this is our second point today, remembering who we are. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi was given a special task, and that was to act as priests to oversee the temple or the tabernacle worship and the tent of meeting and the sanctuary and what would ultimately be the temple. Moses and Aaron were both of the tribe of Levi. And there are several unique things about the Levites. And one is that when God allocated all the land to Israel, they didn't get any, which sounds like they got the short end of the stick until you see what God says. He says, the Lord will be your portion. All of the promises of God belong to the priests. It is their joy to rely daily on the provision of the Lord for their very dwelling. And they were to attend then the business of worship. That included the acts of offering sacrifices and the details of the physical operations of the temple, drawing boundary lines, washing utensils, handling livestock, cleaning knives, tending fires, tearing down the altars. And so even as Israel settled in Jerusalem forever, the work of the Levites didn't diminish. 
In fact, David did something unique here. When Moses gave the law back in Numbers, we see that Moses said that Levites over the age of 30 were conscribed to ministry. But did you see what David did here? It actually happens in two parts. We see the first part back in uh, chapter 23, verses 2 and 3. Listen to what is said. David assembled all the leaders of Israel and the priests of the Levites, or the priests and the Levites. The Levites, 30 years old and upward, were numbered, and the total was 38,000 men. But now look at what happens in verses 24 and 25. These were the sons of Levi by their father's houses, the head of father's houses, as they were listed according to the number of names of the individuals from 20 years old and upward who were to do the work of service for the house of the Lord. What happened? David lowered the age requirement of the priesthood. Why? Because God just brought rest. Now, wouldn't that seem counterintuitive for us? If God brought us rest, doesn't that generally mean less labor? By worldly standards, yes. When we rest, we sit. We do something fun. But by God's standard, the rest which the Lord brings to his people is met by a greater demand of worship, a joyful response of worship. David knew that as God was increasingly fulfilling his promises, that the need for people to help with sacrifices and worship and praise would not decrease, but it would increase. Even though the permanence of Jerusalem demanded less setup and teardown, the flourishing of God's promise assumes that more people than ever would be needed to help others find joy in Jesus. To be called into the priesthood is to be called into the wonderful work of joyful worship. To say, come and see that there is a sacrifice for you. Come and experience this presence of God. Come and see the God who keeps his promise even to knuckleheads who always run away. But when Jesus came, he changed this whole structure. How? He became the sacrifice once and for all. When we sin, we no longer need to go to the good food store, which is conveniently located, buy a sheep, bring it here, present it to a priest, and have it sacrificed. Because what Jesus did was something that the blood of bulls and goats could never do. If you ever get confused reading the Old Testament, you see blood everywhere. That blood is intended to be a placeholder. Our sin demands death. And the author of Hebrews says that if you want forgiveness, that forgiveness cannot come without the shedding of blood. And that means that every drop sacrificed on an altar in the Old Testament is waiting for a substitute. It's waiting either for your blood to be poured out as you die for your own sins, or it's waiting for Jesus Christ, the perfect substitute and spotless lamb to be spilled in your place instead. Look at what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 verses 10 through 14. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so this is why it's so important for us to understand that Jesus was not merely a man, but that he was the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was uniquely suited as the true high priest to bring sacrifices to God on our behalf. But Jesus, as the true lamb of God, was uniquely suited to die as the substitutionary sacrifice for all who believe in him. Jesus was both priest for those without representation and sheep for those with sin. He was our priest sheep who offered himself in our place. The rest God gives us from having to work to find our own salvation of offering repeatedly our best efforts to the Lord, of going through the motions or going to people or going to whatever it is, hoping to find relief can only be found in Jesus Christ. And as we see the rest from that work, our salvation turns us to the joyful work of offering sacrifices to God. Because you see what happened is even though Jesus fulfilled the office of priest, the office of priest didn't go away. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, or excuse me, 2, verses 4 through 5. So he's speaking to the churches here, and he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So today in the story of who we are, where are the priests? Who are the Levites? Those who come to faith in Jesus. This is the wonderful good news of the priesthood of believers, that the rest we have in the gospel turns us to the work of ministry, of offering acceptable acts to God through Jesus Christ. Yes, God prescribes to the church the offices of elders and of deacons, but inside these roles, God gives us the universal blessing of the priesthood of believers. Look at Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so here we see... God gives the church to produce ministers, to produce priests. We are living stones being built up. We are lumpy, bumpy, hard with jagged edges. We will make each other uncomfortable. We will bump into each other's corners and elbows. And yet, it is this community in which God is building the wonderful witness of his promise. The rest we have in the gospel frees us for the work of ministry. And what I love about this passage in First Chronicles is that it acknowledges the ministry of necessity. God did not create so that we can set up and tear down tents and churches. God created so that he might be worshipped and be with his people. But it was necessary for them to set up and tear down. It was a need that God met. And now he says, now that that need is met, now you get to turn to the duty. There's no longer a need to carry, but now there is the duty of service. 
And the Hebrew word for duty is actually presented twice in this text. And it's in these duties that we see how we as the priesthood of believers ought to respond and serve in this church. And this is our final point this morning. Remember our duty. If you notice, so this is kind of a good Bible study technique, is there's actually uh, bookends to this text. And so I want to show you what's in verse 24 and then what's in verse 32. And we're going to see if we could see the similarities that are in there. So this is verse 24. The sons of Levi by their father's house and the heads of their father's houses, as they were listed according to the number of the names of the individuals from 20 years old and upward, who were to do the work of the service of the house of the Lord. Now verse 32. Thus they were to keep charge of the tent of meeting and the sanctuary and to attend the sons of Aaron, their brothers, for the service of the house of the Lord. What are the bookends? The service of the house of the Lord. Meaning everything that the writer is including in between is meant to define for us what it looks like for us as God's priesthood of believers to attend to one another as we serve in the house of the Lord. The wonderful house that God has given us by the fulfillment of his promise. In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls the church of Jesus a body. And just as your body has many parts, so does the church have many parts. Different gifts, different passions, different joys that God has given to us. And for some of you, there's a real possibility that now that the need for manual labor and setting up and tearing down is going away, that you might feel that God's actually taking away something from you. But this is where David wants to show you that that work can continue and that work might even be transformed into something else. This is not the end. Just as this passage begins and ends with service in the house of the Lord, David shows you, shows me, what it looks like to serve as people who have the rest of the gospel. And he uses this Hebrew word of ma'amadah twice in here. And I say that because it's translated as two different things in the ESV. It's translated once as duty and once as to stand. And that's because the sense of this word is this obligation. It's this standing in position, standing at attention, fulfilling what you are meant to fulfill. And so how are we to serve the house of the Lord? How are we to move forward today? David gives us two things. We are to serve and we are to stand. First, we serve. Look again at 1 Chronicles 23, verses 28 and 29. For their duty was to assist the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of the Lord, having the care of the courts and the chambers, the cleansing of all that is holy, and any work for the service of the house of God. Their duty was also to assist with the showbread, the flour for the grain offering, the wafers of unleavened bread, the baked offering, the offering mixed with oil, and all measures of quantity or size. We serve the Lord. We take up our position as priests by assisting in the labor of ministry. Even though Jesus has done away with the need for sacrifices, he has not done away with the need for service. And so we serve the Lord by caring for this building. There will be things that need fixed. I want to just, this is Kurt's worst nightmare. Guys, see those wires hanging there? Yeah, those shouldn't be there, okay? And so we're gonna figure out how to get those wires down. We have a blemish and it's eating Daniel and Kurt alive. 
There's going to be leaks that need fixed. There's going to be cleaning. There's going to be snow that needs shoveled. And these simple acts of service are more than just simple acts of service. Why? Because we are doing it so that we can worship God. It is a need so that others and yourself might come and encounter without unnecessary distraction the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to serve the Lord not by presenting the showbread anymore, but as we'll do in a little bit, by taking the Lord's Supper, by making sure that everyone who comes into this place knows the true bread which has come for us in Jesus Christ. There is something just marvelous about the power of gluten which makes you feel so happy and satisfied and full. When people come into this church, will we seek to give them that same experience of warmth, of fullness, of satisfaction. Even though we no longer need to wash anything because Jesus has sprinkled us clean, are we, do we have the privilege, we do have the privilege, we have the privilege of pointing others to this cleansing work of Jesus Christ. When those who come into our body or into our homes or into our community groups, when they are weak, weary, or wounded, do we serve them by bringing them to the fount of love in Jesus Christ? And saying there is hope, there is cleansing, there is love in Jesus. We're to serve the Lord in our giving, just as the priests kept track of the oils and the weights and the measures. We give to God and we steward our finances for the glory of God. We get to come to church with a distinct posture, which is counterintuitive in our culture today. And that is that most churches that you go into, we go into by nature saying, what can you offer me? But that's not how priests go to church. Priests go to church thinking, how can I serve you? May we be a church whose posture is distinct, where we have hospitable greeters, joyful kid volunteers, and considerate members who are always looking to help others hear and follow Jesus on Sundays and throughout the week. And we want to serve others because in serving others, we are serving the Lord. We are giving him worship. And this is why, secondly, what we see, we serve the house of the Lord by standing. We serve by standing. Look at First Chronicles 23, verses 30 and 32. And they were to stand every morning, thanking and praising the Lord, and likewise at evening. And whenever burnt offerings were offered to the Lord on Sabbaths and new moons and feast days, according to the number required of them regularly before the Lord, thus they were to keep charge of the tent of meeting and the sanctuary and to attend the sons of Aaron, their brothers, for the service of the house of the Lord. What do we stand to do? What is our position and our post as Christians? Worship. The most out of place you will ever be is to be a believer out of worship. We worship at night. We worship in the evening. We worship at festivals. We worship in our community groups. We worship in the workplace. We worship on Sunday mornings. We worship when we're reminded of our rest and everything seems great. 
We worship on weeks like this where the nearness of death draws near and we feel the burden of it. We worship when God is great and we worship when clouds obscure the great God. We worship when we're content and we worship when we're crushed. What is the crowning work of all those who wish to serve the Lord? It is worship. This building can be many things. And knowing our church, it will be many things. But without worship, this cannot be a church. For to be a church, you are drawn to an object worthy of all glory and honor forever and ever. An object which resides in heaven where elders are surrounding the throne for all eternity, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in our limited minds, thinking of conscribing ourselves to saying those six words repeatedly for endless ages seems dreary, but when Jesus brings us home and we see him with new eyes, we will joyfully lay down any calendar to praise and to worship the king who came for us and laid himself down. A king who made us a people by his blood. A king who brings us into his presence today, even though we're not there, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And a king who has been laboring for a place far longer than 44 weeks. And in light of that, we worship with all of our hearts. Paul says this in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What drives our identity as God's people? The worship of the God who made us a people. What drives our humility as a church? the worship of a God who has sustained a church through far more than a pandemic, but through our own sins, our own foolishness. What drives the ministry? What drives the mission of the church? A desire to invite others into the joyful work of worshiping the God who has done great things for us. We desire to reach Missoula and to reach the nations because this God is worthy of our worship. What guides our emotions as a church? That when things are good, we know better days are coming. But when we know things are incomplete, when we know things are broken, when we know life is frail and fleeting, we know better days are coming for the Lord's people. What gets us out of bed in the morning? That God might use our feeble flesh and our weightless breath to make much of him until he takes us home. Sovereign Hope Church, the need to carry and move is passing, but our work here is only beginning. Let us not bemoan what God has joyfully given us. 
but let us attend to one another, our brothers and sisters, for the service of the house of the Lord and for the hope of better realities yet to come. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that in this wonderful building that there are priests set apart for service, that there are priests brought into this ministry not by the work of our hands or by the potential we could offer, but by the blood of Jesus, the true priest and final sacrifice who brings us the promise of the fullness of God's presence forevermore. Lord, we pray that as we enjoy singing, singing which I haven't heard since we've been in a a library, that we realize that every syllable uttered in worship is a miracle from God's own hand. That our hearts do not by nature worship And when we are set free to do so, when tongues are loosed to praise, they are loosed by the king who sets us free. Lord, we pray as we turn to the Lord's Supper that you be merciful and gracious to us, that this church, that this body might be poured out as an offering pleasing to you and may fruit come for the glory of your name. Amen.